0: This very special Transformers Edition episode is brought to you by Richard's Billiards. Not your average hero's new name, same place, 5815 Weber. Transformers the Movie,
1: the 30th Anniversary Edition, is now on DVD and for the first time on Blu-ray. stopped no matter the cost such heroic nonsense. the 30th anniversary edition is mastered from a stunning new 4k transfer plus brand
2: new bonus features when i did this one line that fans seem to remember and like there was an eruption of cheers and applause transformers
1: the movie the 30th anniversary edition one shall stand one shall fall. Now available on Blu-ray, DVD, and digital download.
0: ladies and gentlemen the moment has arrived and transformers the movie the 34th anniversary is here and now welcome ladies and gentlemen to this very special transformers the movie edition of the main event talk podcast i am the main event player the super c the god among gods the king among kings the coolest son of a motherfucking bitch walking god's green earth Well, can you believe it? 34 years, 34 years since the debut of this movie when it came out back in August 8th of 1986. It was one of the most popular movies that happened back in the 1980s, along with movies like The Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, The Lost Boys, Beverly Hills Cop, and other movies in that particular nature. While those movies were extremely iconic in every way possible, Transformers, the movie was just as iconic. And now here we are, 34 years later, and we're still talking about this movie, and it is still one of the most iconic movies ever in the history of animated films. Today, we're here to talk about uh, taking a look back into Transformers the movie, looking back into everything that happened, and you'll hear the voices of people like Greg Berger and Neil Ross and... Uh, the people involved. Stan Bush was a part of this as well. You'll get a chance to hear the documentary that we're going to play on this episode of the Men Talk podcast. Now, you guys may have heard this and saw it live on my Facebook if you had the opportunity. And if you haven't, now you get a chance to hear it right here right now so before we go ahead and get into this speaking of the transformers you guys know that the transformers have a new show that's happening on netflix and if you guys have not heard about it here's a special look at transformers war for cybertron
3: i have done what i have to do to end this war win this war. This is the final day of the Autobot Resistance.
4: I cannot help but ask
3: myself a hopeless crusade. Have my
5: actions led to the extinction of our people. The Allspark is a vessel of life.
6: In the hands of Megatron. There's no telling
3: what he might do. The Allspark. Yeah. A clean and decisive victory. And if we continue on this course, no one will be left to win. Let's do circle closes. Prime.
0: The release of War for Cybertron had took place around July 30th and so far everyone's been getting a lot of good reviews about this particular show and man, I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but the main event will definitely have an opportunity to check out Transformers War for Cybertron. So if you guys got Netflix, get an opportunity to check out not only Transformers the movie if it is available, you can also get a chance to check out this great series entitled Transformers, the Transformers War for Cybertron, it should be tremendous. Check it out on Netflix. It is the year 2005, and a new novel threatens the galaxy. In the
1: most incredible adventure you've ever seen. Transformers, the movie. It's Old Does time die? Then who will be the Autobots? And what is the secret of the Monster Planet?
7: It's so big, so exciting, you've got to see it twice to take it all in. Transformers,
1: the movie. Rated PG opens in theaters everywhere today.
0: Nothing like listening to an old piece of history, an old piece of uh, Transformers commercial that took place back in 1986 when everyone was excited to check out Transformers, the movie when it hit theaters back in 1986, and as a kid, I, I really didn't get a chance to see the movie in every way possible. I did see it when it was on VHS, and there was a difference in every way possible about the vhs one and then you know a few years later than the release of the dvd and everything else like that so i've managed to collect them all every single step of the way and that's how huge of a fan i am of the transformers so now guys let's get into what we need to talk about right here on tra- on this uh, 30th 34th anniversary of transformers the movie Now, you guys had an opportunity to see this live as it happens on my Facebook, but if you guys have not had a chance to hear it, here's your chance to hear it right here and right now. This is off of the uh, Transformers, the movie, the 30th anniversary edition, and the documentary is entitled Till All Are One, the retrospect looking back at Transformers, the movie. I've mentioned several of the names and I've mentioned several of the people and now you get a chance to hear it from the mouth of everyone that was involved in the movie. And believe me, I mean, this, you know, I love listening to documentaries like this. I love watching documentaries like this. It gives me, you know, an idea of how Transformers the movie was a long, long time ago. So if you're a huge fan, you know what I'm talking about. But if you never heard this, here's your chance to hear it. An exclusive right here on the Main Event Talk podcast. Till all are one, the retrospect, a look back at Transformers the movie
3: shall stand, one shall
5: fall. Why throw away your life so recklessly? That's a question you should ask yourself, Megatron. Every time I see it, it's a different movie. The one time I watched it and I realized just how prof- profoundly 80s the movie was. And then another time I watched it and it was almost like an art film. Just watch the sequence inside Unicron. In any other generation, that would have been abstract surreal art. This just happened to be a talking robot show. We knew that part of the reason we were bringing out the movie is we wanted to launch the 86 toy line. And so in order to do that you have to get rid of the 85
1: toy line. When you get right down to it this was a show built around a toy line. And that was the bottom line always. Now the writers did a great job and and, and Flint Dilly the producers and those guys did a fabulous job with the scripts. And we were used to this cuz we'd get you know faxes that said
5: you know these characters are discontinued stop using them.
2: We actors tend to forget it's like there's a script there, and it's like it fell out of the ceiling. Well, no, it didn't. Some poor devil sat down in front of a blank screen and said, What am I going to write about? Oh. And it was a
5: very collaborative process. At one point, I was in Manhattan for six weeks, staying at the uh, Grand High, across the street from where Sunbow was. And I'd go in every day, or I'd, I'd write in the room, and then we'd print out my pages and read through them. And I don't even know how many drafts there were. It was just one long rewrite. That happened every day. Flint had a lot of strange ideas about uh, about plots for the show. Most of the Transformer characters, you know, the guys, I the new ones, I didn't know. I, I just based them on the '85 Bears, just because I'm from Chicago. Yeah, and so I mean, you can kind of kind of look at the new lineup and see who they are. Scourge, the Tracker, and his Huntsman, the Sweeps, Cyclonus, the Warrior. God knows how many drafts it went through And how many iterations And different things would cause iterations You'd have somebody to get a new idea Somebody to have a note Some new product to be added Something to be deleted
7: I think of I want to hear Transformers the movie is probably Optimus Prime dying.
5: We would always planned to kill Optimus Prime and that was going to be the big surprise and the big dramatic thing in the movie. And when the movie actually showed, apparently some kid in Michigan, I think, locked himself into the bathroom
1: for two weeks. It upset a lot of kids. I mean, these are characters that they had grown quite fond of. They watched every day in their homes. And suddenly they're being killed, these these characters who actually weren't alive to begin with. I mean, they're robots, but they were being decimated right and left, gone. It was a big, big shock to a lot of kids. never occurred to us
5: that, you know, that there was a kind of loyalty and, you know, fanaticism for the characters.
3: Prime, you can't die!
5: Do not
2: grieve. Soon. I shall be one with the Matrix. I don't think they realized what they had with uh, Peter Cullen and Optimus Prime. I mean, now they do. But back then, oh, I'll just kill him off, no problem. But, I mean, the kids loved that character. They loved what Peter did. It was a, an astonishing
7: performance. Watching Optimus Prime die was and continues to be one of the hardest things to see. He doesn't just die the way like a quote unquote children's character dies in a children's movie. He dies basically on a hospital bed surrounded by his friends who are watching his vital signs fail. It's a long scene and it's still really hard to watch even though you know now that he comes back. It's one of the most moving death scenes I've ever seen.
5: What I was thinking about for Optimus's death was it was John Wayne in the Alamo, which was my scarring childhood. I mean, you're supposed to, you know, it's supposed to be that childhood movie you see where everybody gets scarred, you know. And in the mid '80s,
7: people weren't doing that because everybody was thinking in terms of franchise. They definitely go out of their way to say that he's dead. I mean, he turns gray, his head turns to the side, like just just so you know, he's really dead. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty brutal.
5: We've been working on these characters for a year and a half. We want to give them a good send-off.
7: We want to have them mean something when they die. We, you know, it was as much that as what we thought the audience would think. And I love that that scene is then followed by the great contradiction of how the Decepticons deal with losing their leader, where it's just a bunch of criminals and opportunists that are like, well, we threw that guy out the window, so what are we going to do now?
3: <laughs> oh, how it pains me to do this. Wait, I still function.
5: What a bet! At one point in our script, we had like the entire 85 Autobot toy line, you know, attack. You know, basically the Decepticons who were blocking their way to the center of Cybertron. It was just this charge of the Light Brigade, and the whole whole product line gets wiped wiped out. We should have known the
2: kids were going to be not happy about having their toy line wiped out. My memory is we didn't get the script in advance. So we show up and they pass out the scripts and it's like, and we're doing the the Pat Fraley thing, you know, BS, BS, my line, BS, BS, my line. And suddenly we're going, wait a minute, I die. wally you know and it was like consternation all around it it says here i die yeah that's that's kind of what it says
3: no such
5: heroic
3: nonsense
5: i was there for i think almost all the recordings you know all the actors we recorded because you're rewriting there too because i mean our actors were things like stand-up comedians, and they were really great voice actors, and they really inhabited the characters. And when you're writing, you have 135 characters in your cast. and you're writing these characters, you know, you forget that dirge always sounds morbid and downcast, and he's playing against whoever. But you actually hear it in the room, and you realize, oh, we're not doing that. And the actors know their characters. To them, the entire project is this character. To me, it's this massive chess game where we're moving stuff around, and the story's got to go here, and these guys got to be here, and this guy's not here, and this guy's over here, and you know, they're not thinking that way. They're seeing it very POV from the point of view of their character, and so I think it really behooves you to listen to them. My take on the goal of the voice actor is
6: to add a third dimension. You've been gifted with beautiful incredible art from the artists breakdowns that are so specific that you need to just take it in simmer it and make a bouillabaisse and figure out what it sounds like but in finding out what it sounds like over the course of a season and then seasons and then a
5: feature every time you get a new script you're taken on a new adventure Whatever i could i'd have them do a read and that was something we introduced they didn't do an animation before then we do a read all the way through it but they're supposed to read it through in character and it's just like add something you know make it better we're going to get the stuff that's actually in the script but if you have some idea you really like let's hear it and those guys are really good at because they really knew their characters they knew each other they knew how they related to the other characters and i think that's why a lot of
1: the sunbow shows of that time had a feel to them you fill a room with a bunch of personalities like we had on this show, actors and musicians, comedians. I mean, it was bedlam with, you know, Michael Bell trying to top Frank Welker, trying to top Peter Cullen. I mean, and everybody was in there doing their own thing. It was just crazy. Some were just like the, the best of the best real pros, you know, the, the Frank Welkers and stuff like that
5: in the world. Then you had guys, incredibly raw characters like Chris Lotto, who was a stand-up comedian. And that is probably, if you had to get to special forces of the entertainment industry at Stand-Up Comedians. And, and he was just a totally different animal. You know, and, and, but that's what made it special. I mean, Chris was great, but I mean, he was just, you know, a, a,
1: a raw force of energy in the room. Michael Bell was placed next to, uh, to Chris Lana in one of the recording sessions. And Chris, uh, Chris had a tendency to perspire freely. And because of the gyrations and stuff, Michael actually had to order a towel at one point. Wally, could someone bring me a towel because I'm soaked on one side from Chris? So it, it was pretty... Those recording sessions were pretty crazy.
3: Fellow Decepticons, Astral Train has requested that we lighten our burden. In that case, I say it is survival of the
1: fittest.
3: Do I hear a second on that?
7: Aye. I do have to
1: hand hand one thing to Wally. He wrote Heard on all of us, and he actually got the shows done, so you know for that. My hat's off to him.
8: Wally Burr on the movie, of course, he was a director, and he was a dynamite director. He was one of the first directors I've ever worked with.
6: Wally Burr, who really was the man on the other side of the glass with the, the storyboard in front of him, who knew the overall picture. He was a firm taskmaster, but he knew
2: what he wanted. He was uh, probably the most conscientious, most prepared, or one of the most conscientious and prepared directors I ever worked with. He would show up at sessions bleary-eyed because he'd been up till 4 in the morning making notes, preparing, uh, working on the storyboard and the script. There's a thing called a storyboard, which is basically the panels laid out as they're
1: going to, sort of like, you know, the Sunday comics. And it shows the action and what's going to happen. And Wally would, would study those the night before or the week before, whenever we would, you know, before we did the recording. And he would hear those, those lines in his head as he read the storyboard. And if you did not give him those lines the way he'd heard them the night before in his head we were not moving on you were going to keep doing take after take after take until you got it right
3: it!
8: look it isn't even dented. even about walla sounds walla sounds meaning <laughs> he'd go no sue i wanted <laughs> and i'd go <laughs> he'd go not exactly
2: he had a sound in his head, and until he got it on tape, uh, he wasn't gonna relent.
1: Now I developed a very uh, a life-saving way of, of of handling Wally. I would try three or four takes, and if he wasn't getting what he wanted, I would say Wally, just do it for me the way you want to hear it. And Wally would perform the line, badly, generally, and then I would do my best to parrot it back to him the way he had done it, and bing! that usually we'd move right along. So all I'd have to do is, is like mine a bird Wally and I was I was good. He was right to be demanding. That's part of what exists over
2: time. That's part of what made this epic story epic over time. I've never heard him say this, but I've always said Wally would be entitled to say, listen, there's two shows that you guys are really remembered for. There's two shows that invite you to come to conventions and make speeches and make DVDs. And they just happen to be these two shows I directed. Now, maybe it's a giant coincidence, or maybe my extra effort and the extra effort I required of you guys was worth it. And I would say he's entitled to say that, and I would agree with him.
1: You have to give it to him. I mean, obviously, this stuff is held up. The movie is great, and he, st- he directed everyone in the movie. Eric Idle, he directed. Leonard Nimoy, all of these celebrities who came in to do the film. Wally directed them, too. So, uh, hail Wally. Coronation Starscream. This is bad comedy.
3: Megatron? Is that you? Here's a hint.
5: <laughs> so you're taking a kids' toy show that runs every afternoon and trying to get people to come into a theater and spend real money on it. So there's stuff done just to say, you know, take this seriously. And you actually have Orson Welles and Judd Nelson and, you know, Leonard Nimoy. I mean, that's, you know, that's huge. Robert Stack. And it's a smart thing to do with animation because you're really asking very little of the actress. It's only a, you know, a day or maybe a couple of days of work.
1: What about me, Magnus? What about me? Ha, ha,
3: ha. I can help. I want to help. What about me? Blur, you can help me alert the others. Absolutely, positively, definitely. Nobody can get
7: the job done faster than I can. Nobody, nobody,
5: nobody. At one level, you're looking at the marquee, but past a point. It's really what that actor's bringing to the table. And I think that a lot of those people do. I mean, you're bringing a little bit of them and you know, when you have Leonard Nimoy, there's a little bit of Spock coming in with you. You'll do my bidding or taste my wrath.
7: You underestimate me, Galvatron. I think Unicron, is a really fantastic science fiction design just across the board. The voice, like Orson Welles, and his final performance is fantastic. Orson Welles came in and he said, I hear
5: I'm playing a whole planet. And I've said this before, but he looked like a whole planet. Orson Welles was a
1: really big guy. He was like 6'4", 6'5", and at that point probably well over 400 pounds. But he was great. Welles demanded that he be alone in the studio. He didn't want to be with anyone else. And that's, that's frequently the case with celebrities.
5: Everybody was afraid to to be in the room or to encourage his wrath because Wally had been playing this tape of uh, him just reaming some ad executive out and uh, anyway, nobody wanted to be the wine
1: executive. He could not have been better. Someone, I can't remember who tells this story. I think it's Paul Iding tells the story. He snuck in and was able to actually watch part of it and to watch Wally uh, Bird direct Orson Welles must have been quite a treat. I am a well, you know Wally's not going to be beating up on the man who who created Citizen Kane, one of the great voices of all time. I mean, uh, Orson Welles had an incredibly beautiful voice. I have summoned you here for a purpose. Nobody summons Megatron.
5: Then it pleases me to be the first. And there was this minute, well, where we're, you know, while well, the attacks were all... You know, or You know, they're they're messing with the sound and the volumes. And I, at that point, I was really into um, uh, Mercury Theater and the Shadow stuff that he did. So I was talking to him about the Shadow. I think he thought that was really refreshing that everybody always wanted to talk to him about about uh, Citizen Kane or something. And it's like that we were talking about radio.
2: Hey, what's the matter?
8: Uh, I don't know, Hot Rod. Come on, you can tell me. Guess I just miss my dad.
2: Don't worry,
5: Spike will be back soon.
8: Oh, hey, I got something.
5: The movie couldn't be about the character arc of Hot Rod. We had way too much business. We had forty characters introduced, introduce. Way too much business to do much of it. But we wanted to get a sense that he was he was good at it and he was competent, but he was kind of a noob. But King Arthur would be what immediately would come to mind.
3: Hey, Cup, don't you think we have better things to do now than tell old stories like what? Like, maybe figure out how we're going to rescue our friends
8: and then save Cybertron.
5: Judd Nelson, what he brought was, you know, kind of the Brad Pack and the young feeling to it.
8: Wally had a tendency to bring us in one at a time. So when Judd was done and he'd be walking out, I would be walking into the session. So we had an opportunity to talk a lot. Where'd you learn to
2: talk like that? TV! We talk TV. You know, Eric Idol.
5: You can't script what he did with his voice and the intonations of it. But it wasn't like, you know, Robin Williams in, in Aladdin or something. That was, things were pretty scripted. If he, had, if he had an idea or something else he wanted to do or he ran off, Because a lot of times we'd encourage that.
3: Friends act now! Destroy Unicorn! Kill the Grand Kublai! Eliminate even the toughest stage! No fuss, Hurry, hurry, hurry! Style must end! Rush right on down and test drive latest model with no
5: obligation! Quite honestly, if there was somebody I was most impressed by at just a primal level, it was was Robert Stack. He was a great guy, but he'd never done voiceover before. And I'd forgotten in The Untouchables, it wasn't he that was a voiceover. He was just, but he was Elliot Ness. Springer, UNRC transform Autobot City. Receptor, town blasted a radio prime for reinforcements. He was the one that was most, am I doing this? He wasn't, I would not characterize as insecure or anything, but he wanted to make sure he was doing it because he knew this was not in the bandwidth of the craft he knew. And he was fabulous, but yeah, it came as no surprise to me that he was sort of the voice of the first good reality TV with uh, Unsolved Mysteries. But prime. I'm, I'm just a soldier, I, I'm not worthy. Ultra Magnus was a doomed character. He was kind of a temporary placeholder, leader of the Autobots. He would be noble and valiant, and, and, but there was this kind of fatalism about him. And he, I, he, he brought that really nicely to the role. <laughs> not bad for an old timer. Old timer? That's something you'll never be if you don't get back to
3: the
2: city. It was such a treat to work with Lionel Stander. He went all the way back to the silent era. He was in silent movies. And he had this name, Lionel Stander. You expect some tall, impeccably dressed British gentleman to walk in. But instead, you get this guy from Brooklyn with a voice like this, you know. And uh, he he told in the green room some wonderful stories. He was just a hell of a character. It was an inspired piece of casting. But uh, what I discovered was, we got in the room and we started to record, and we're all lined up in a row, side side by side. And Lionel, I guess, because of all his stage and movie work, he needed to make eye contact, so he would. He would be doing a line, and the mic is here, and you can't go off mic in voiceovers, but he was following the Decepticons, and Wally would go, you're off mic, Lionel. So he didn't realize what the problem was. Let's try it again, Lionel. No, you're off mic again. And I thought that we're going to be here till St. Swithin's Day if somebody doesn't do something. So I looked ahead in the script, and I realized, well, I don't have any lines for a couple of pages. So I tiptoed around, and I stood in front of Lionel. And he did... His lines to me. Now he had someone to, to act with. And he was fine. He was on Mike and, and it was that's ah, perfect, Lionel. This reminds me of the battle on Alpha 9. The Petra Rabbits were
3: Grimlock, get your noodle out of my face. Me, Grimlock, love Cup's war stories.
2: You're living one now. And Lionel, I loved him. He was he had these hearing aids. He was quite I think he was in his eighties at this point, but he was selectively hard of hearing. In the green room, he could hear everything but we would get on the floor and suddenly he couldn't hear Wallet. Yeah. So he does a lie and I don't know what it is.
3: The Decepticons are coming.
2: And Wallet goes, all right, that's that's fine Lionel, but I'm need a lot more energy because this is a very difficult situation. The younger guys are there. You don't want to panic them, but you're in a tough situation, but you don't want to let these young guys know how tough the situation is. So I want to hear the... Got it Lionel, okay, take two. What did he say? <laughs> and I said, Do it again louder. The Decepticons are coming. Perfect. Moving on. So that was, I I directed one line in in the movie. Nobody knows that. remind me to give the autopilot a raise why they didn't give Springer to a celebrity I don't know I'm very glad they didn't maybe it wasn't quite big enough of a role to offer to a celebrity I'm not sure or maybe because I had already recorded four or five episodes oh let's put him in there I I really don't know the answer to that I'm just really really grateful that they let me do it
8: I was afraid you'd be trapped outside the city Uh,
3: hey I
8: wasn't worried for a microsecond Then you probably didn't understand the situation. You know, when I first started out in voiceovers, there was so few women in animation. Some of the women, you know, we could like do boy voices, which was great. So we could do a lot of the little boys from 12 under. But there wasn't a lot of work for women. And so when I got into it, and especially as RC and Transformers, It was incredible, and people loved it, that there was a female robot. And I think that opened the door to all sorts of new female characters in animation in in big boy adventure shows.
2: Believe it or not, this is the fun part. I know there was that little frisson of uh, what's going on between these two. <laughs> A gentle robot doesn't uh, tell tales out of school, I'm sorry. Look,
3: it's Unicron!
7: The animation has always been beautiful and stunning. I mean, you can show the opening scene of Unicron to someone who's never seen it before, and it's just an amazing thing to watch. Like, it holds up great, especially now that we have less 2D movies. It looks even better. I mean, it's rare to see something like that. The production values are so much higher than
1: than uh, than the normal day-to-day episodes because they had more money to spend. So that was great. That part was was very exciting for us. The T.V. series is more like simplify the
9: line. Uh, the, this one has the a lot of extra line too you know the highlights and the, uh, the body color and we we call it the body color and also also shade all the uh, like uh, uh, shadows you know on hair time uh, the also the contact shadow on the ground you know you know the uh, all the details you can you can see that time there, uh, whatever you see you know that's all new we created as a new. Uh, effects and animation and
5: just every, everything, you know. The thing that was incredible is the best stuff that Nelson brought, you don't even notice until you kind of study the film and, and when I was doing the, the voice track for the 25th anniversary disc, he was talking about it. You see the all the effects the uh, like a um, bluish
9: look, you know, purple. Right. That's from the Decepticon, you know. Yeah, Decepticon is a different color. Like a uh, Autobots has an orange color into it, you know? Right. Yeah.
5: That's the concept of the uh, color for this movie. And I never noticed the difference, the coloring, and how much the story he told for color and light and nuance. And it only really came through subconsciously. It was, you know, the colors of the, of the shots, you could tell who was there. He would light Decepticons and Autobots in different ways or slight different hues in it. In a funny way, to hear him talk about it, the thing feels like an art film. Look at all the
9: background, the uh, sky, you know? Sky is uh, a fighting mode, you know? It's not the
5: blue sky, you know? Bob Rufus once said of Joe McCauley he said, he's the only person in the world that thinks in one twenty-fourth of a second increments. And it's absolutely true. Now, when you're making a movie, that's a really great way to think. When you have to do five episodes for next week, You have to think in like in a full, you know, minute and 22 minute
3: increments.
6: I don't think you can uh, separate any of the elements that work together in the feature from each other. Another Essentially, cast member or ensemble member is the soundtrack itself.
1: The music is so out there. It's 80s headbanging music. And it's, it's floor to ceiling music, man. It's hard to find more definitive 80s
5: movies. You're listening to the music, and it's this arena rock that only existed in nature for a very short window of time. <laughs>
6: Dan Bush and Vince DiCola and everyone involved created something that was perfect. It's like a perfect time capsule uh, for the moment that the film was released. And those uh, songs have had
5: long, wonderful longevity as well. To this day, you can hear people doing karaoke versions of The Touch.
10: Lenny Macaluso, my co-writer, he and I originally wrote the song with the movie Cobra in mind, Stallone, the Stallone movie, and uh, the record label got it placed in the Transformers movie instead, and we were both like a cartoon movie about robots. <laughs> we were, You know, at the time, it was like, little did we know that it would become a real phenomenon. Now light our darkest hour. It's really about believing in yourself and uh, going for it. I mean, it's kind of corny in a way, but you, when you think about it, we have an amazing amount of power that we don't even realize that, you know, if you tap into whatever you call it, the sports people, a- athletes, they, they do that same sort of thing. It's a, you know, you reach within yourself. It's just amazing what, what you can do if you, you know, put your mind to it. And uh, I, I don't know, it's just... You sort of make your make your own reality a lot of people don't seem to realize that and uh it's life is hard enough right if, if you don't believe in yourself so it's it's important to uh i don't know it's it's cool it's there's a spiritual aspect to it as well Dare has a similar kind of thing. It's uh go for it, believe in yourself. Uh, it's it's sort of, uh, I don't know, it's important to uh, to have that sort of confidence in, in things. You
3: can see everything from Lookout Mountain. A little to the left, a little bit more. what you might
10: I didn't write there. Vince DiCola and and, uh, Scott Shelley, they wrote it. It had to be a vocal song, so I knew that I couldn't rely on
4: music carrying it. It had to be a strong melody, very strong hook, especially the chorus of the song. Scott, on the first try, nailed the lyrics. Uh, What I did was I sent him a demo with just the music, and I was singing the melody like sort of na-na, like nonsense syllables. And Scott did a great job of nailing it. I have to point out a little special story about it. When I was at the convention in 1997 in Rochester, New York, Stan and I were lucky to have so many fans come up to us and at, at our panel and say how much the, the songs and the score meant to them. One guy came up and said the song literally saved his life. Um, he was ready to commit suicide, and he listened over and over to that specific song and the lyrics, and he said, it, it took away his his wish to be to take his own life. And there can't be any more powerful uh, compliment to a song than that. So Scott, like I said, did, just did a perfect job of nailing it and uh, and again the director and producer said home run. So that was the process. You can win if you're dead.
3: Decepticons
4: Doing. I scored Rocky IV and the producers of Transformers seemed to love that score a lot and they wanted that style for their movie so we had a meeting and um, I did one demo for them, um, in fact the demo made it on some of the soundtrack uh, special releases that came out at the Transformers conventions and it was called Legacy. Um, unfortunately, none of the demo made it into the movie. But I had a, a good guy's theme, a bad guy's theme, battles, uh, and since they said they liked that music, I basically just used those styles in the in the movie, in an actual movie score. Look!
3: Come on, I, Galvatron, will crush you just as.
4: I think we did the score in like 35 days and my process was I had my own music studio at my house in Van Nuys and I would demo all the material, I would write all the material in that studio and then bring it into Scotty Brothers studio which is where we recorded all the music. What we did was we filled a room with at that Point, every synthesizer almost known to man and it was like a big toy store it was just great I loved it it was a rush but it almost was better because of that uh, you know working under such a strict deadline there was wasn't much time for experimentation so we really just we we mapped it out we mapped out all the synthesizers and where what was going to be used for what and just flew
5: there was this moment in the mid 80s when it became a totally credible instrument. And I wish there were more of that stuff now. People don't use those things, those weird sounds in as creative ways anymore. I used the synthesizers like an
4: orchestra. Um, I mean, there were a lot of sounds in transformers, you know, obviously, that needed to be electronic sounding. But mostly I use those instruments to prepare the listener for the fact that it is an orchestral score, it's just done with synthesizers.
5: Once sampling came along and modern digital came along, they actually sounded like the real instrument. This was in that window when they sounded really cool, but you could still tell. Now you have to really work at it to get that sound. Then that was all you could have, and there were geniuses with it.
3: Till all are one.
4: My buddy Casey Young was the guy hired to do the sound effects within the score. So he brought all his gear into the uh, equation and I think to this day Casey considers that his most fun gig because he, he was able to bring everything into the room. I mean, it was two trucks full of stuff. Uh, modular synthesizers, analog synthesizers, digital synthesizers. And it was literally a candy store where all the synthesizers were in the same room. And The battle pieces in particular called for me actually going around the room and playing different synthesizers and doubling that, getting different sound effects from other synthesizers and we just had a blast. I haven't had a chance like that since then or before that, so that was that was an important part of the whole score process for me.
3: Look out and shout! Ow! Hey, Perceptor, what's shaking other than this fortress? Blaster, Ultra Magnus sends orders to contact Optimus Prime on Moonbase One. All right. Cover your receptors, perceptor.
4: They really let me have free reign on that, uh, which is unheard of in a movie, for, for a movie score. But they respected my my uh, gut reactions. And I would say that half the credit also has to go to my co-producer, Ed Frugier, because Ed was on the receiving end of uh my music in putting it into the movie and it was a lot of music editing that needed to be done since i had done the music they had made changes to the visual so ed was there with the director and and all the other uh people on staff you know having to do with putting them the, the, all together putting all the elements together so ed did a great job i mean he cut the music up quite a bit but he had to and he's a musician himself so his part was equally as important as mine Guilty or innocent? Innocent! They've
3: got more Sharktacons than we have photon charges! Then let's hold a demolition, Davey!
4: I hadn't heard any of the songs, except for Dare, which I co-wrote, going into the movie, so... I was trusting that I was doing something that at least would tie in with these rock songs. doesn't sound like anything in the score jolts you like well where's that why does that belong in a soundtrack like this so i think that has a lot a lot to do with scotty brothers picking their artists and um the the director and producers making sure that all it all hung together so yeah i think it was great ba Bo- weep grana weep ninibon
3: ba Bo- ho- weep grana weep ninibon ba weep grana weep ninibon what you
6: it's all so intricately interwoven uh, that I think part of the reason that we're still talking about it all this time later is because there was some kind of magic collaboration
4: that happened to happen to happen to happen. I'm so captivated and I'm so uh, awe-inspired that The music does play such an important part.
6: Seeing it for the first time is a thrill because if you're used to seeing yourself on the small screen and you see yourself on the big screen, it's, it, it's a big rush.
1: It's just great. I have done very little film work, so I was excited to see, you know, my not my image, but at least my voice on the big screen, and it was great to see that.
8: We all went and, and uh, you know, to see my character, R.C., and to see all the other characters, it was really exciting.
2: My most vivid memory, uh, because most of the time you don't see your own work, uh, and very seldom do you see your own work with an audience there to react to it. And when I did this one line that fans seem to remember and like, i got
3: better things to
2: do tonight than die. And there was an eruption of cheers and applause, and I went, oh my God, I must have must have hit a nerve with that
6: one. To sit down and uh, have popcorn and hear people, uh, these are not quiet audiences as a rule. Even when it first came out, uh, you had a fandom that was invested in the story and the characters and between gasps, which this movie generates, and cheers, which this movie generates, and laughs, which this movie generates. It's a complete theatrical experience. Big screen, small screen, any screen, but it, it, it's its its a very nice piece
3: of work. Let this mark the end of the Cybertronian Wars as we march forward to a new age of peace and happiness. Till all are one. Till all are two. one.
8: Transformers, the movie lasting 30 years like this, is really incredible. And I think what has made it last are the fans.
5: It never crossed my mind in 1986 that I'd be sitting here in 20, 30 years later and doing an interview about this movie. This was, this was ephemeral stuff. You know, the fan world that we now know was only starting to exist and it was all being synthesized. All the different elements were coming together exactly in that period. Without that,
1: um, none of this would have had a future that we could be discussing now. It's really remarkable to talk to some of these fans and um, I don't want to get too maudlin about it, but people will come up to me and, and, and others of us uh, who were in the cast and say things like, you were such a big part of my childhood. I can't thank you enough for the joy that you gave me. Or they might say, you know, I had a really difficult time. My my parents were divorcing, or you know, I was not well. I was I was ill with some childhood illness, and this helped me get through. And it's
10: it that's a powerful thing to hear about something that 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 you were able to to lend your talents to. I've gotten fan letters over the years from people who, uh, you know, those songs, the touch and, and dare, uh, uh, changed their life in, in a lot of cases where. You know, maybe they uh, weren't particularly doing well in life, and and those songs, you know, uh, encouraged them to uh, go for it. One one guy was an attorney, is an attorney, and and whenever before he goes into a trial, he plays the touch, <laughs> and you know, it's kind of cool, you know. You got the touch.
1: We just did a convention not that long ago and they had a the, uh, screening of the film and it, the auditorium was filled. I mean, people
6: loved the movie. There's a fandom in the Transformers franchise that is so
10: incredibly loyal and invested and interested. I've attended a number of the uh, BotCon conventions, Transformers conventions, and uh, the people are, they they have my my music and they love the Transformers, the songs. In 1997, when I was contacted by the organizer of the Transformers convention,
4: and this was 11 years after the movie came out, I wasn't even aware that there was a convention for Transformers. And the organizer, Glenn Howard, at the time, he took great joy in telling me over the phone, he said, you're probably not going to be prepared for the fan, the number of fans, and the reaction that your score has. And I, it really sounded surreal to me. And I remember the day, the first day that I was actually going to do a panel. I saw a line going out the door and around two blocks long outside. I thought it was like the general entrance to the convention. So I got in and Stan and I got into our panel room and I remember Glenn standing back in the back of the room with his his arms crossed with a big smile on his face. And I went up to him and I said, what are you smiling about? He says, you don't realize that this line
2: is for you guys, do you? And I said, absolutely not. People kept telling me that I should go to these conventions. And I just had this mental picture of me sitting in some huge hall at a card table being ignored. But finally they had a BotCon in Pasadena, I think 2011, I could be wrong. And they invited me, and I thought, well, it's Pasadena. If it's horrible, I just say, thanks, good night, get in the car, and go home. So I said, all right, I'll do this. And I show up, and I'm there, I think, yeah, I was with Greg Berger. And they said, okay, you guys are going to sign autographs now. Oh, okay. And they march us around a curtain, and I see this line of people that goes to the horizon and around the corner, and I don't know where it ends. And I'm looking, and I'm going, who are they? uh, And they said, that's for you. They're waiting for you. And I can't describe the feeling. It was, I'm I'm getting verklempt thinking about it. But uh, yeah, that was the first clue I had to how huge this phenomena still was after all these years.
1: It was real privilege to be able to to make that kind of an impact on someone's life. Because a lot of times you think, well, I'm an actor. You know, I'm not curing cancer. I'm not doing anything of really any value. And to hear that sort of thing from a fan, you realize that maybe you have done something for someone or affected someone's life in a positive way. And that's a, that's a powerful thing to hear.
2: Periodically, fans will thank me for what I have done to bring some pleasure into their lives. And I always turn it around and I say, no, thank you. Because without the fans, uh, we got no show. And thanks to the fans, I have spent my entire adult life pretty much doing what I wanted to do. A vocation that brought me pleasure and joy to where I wasn't like, oh, it's Monday, I gotta go to work. It was like, I can't wait to get out there and do this again. And that's such a rare privilege. Most people don't get to experience that at all. And that's all thanks to the fans who tuned in. And I So thank you is the way I would end this.
0: was the, um, <clears throat> the documentary that everyone had a chance to listen to and hear this past Friday on my Facebook page and now you know that's the uh, that's the end of it I you got
3: a price to
0: go on. Uh, sorry about that I was trying to get through everything so that way you can you know try to finish this off so that's going to do it for this edition of the main event talk podcast the Transformers the movie edition you know I've been a huge fan of Transformers for a long time. And, you know, it's been going on for 34 years. And this shit is still, to me, the greatest movie that ever came out of the 80s. Personally, to me. I'm the main event player of the Super C. Thank you for listening to this episode. And as always, (laughs) I I almost forgot my line. Uh, Hopefully, oh, and before I go ahead and leave, go ahead and get an opportunity to go to Netflix and check out War for Cybertron. When you guys have an opportunity to check out Netflix. It's going to be a tremendous, tremendous show. It's already been released. The first episode. And there's more episodes to come. So guys, until next time. I'll see you. And we'll get back on the flip side next year. For the 35th anniversary. Of Transformers the movie. Why? Because I can. And I want to. Any questions. Enough said until that day, till all are one.
3: Each of us. You got the touch.